Matthew chapter 21. We are talking, as our worship leader Sean said, about the triumphal entry this evening. And the day that we commemorate Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem is known on the church calendar as Palm Sunday. That's today. Why is it called Palm Sunday? What is the significance of that? We'll figure it out as we study this text. So we're going to start reading in Matthew 21 in verse 1. We'll read a few verses and then we'll talk about it. It says in Matthew 21, verse 1, And when they had approached Jerusalem, speaking of Jesus and his disciples, and had come to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says something to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. Now this took place that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And the disciples went and did just as Jesus had directed them, and brought the donkey and the colt, and laid on them their garments on which he sat. And most of the multitude spread their garments in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. And the multitudes going before him and those who followed after were crying out, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when Jesus had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred and saying, Who is this? Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you have been revealed, that Jesus Christ, you have been revealed in history as a unique son of God and the savior of the world. Thank you that Jesus, for those of us who have already been born again, you've already made a triumphal entry into our lives. We praise you for that. And we ask that tonight, Lord, you would come and exert your kingship in our lives that you would rule and reign in our lives, that we would go beyond seeing you as Savior and we'd see you as Lord and King. And that, Jesus, you would develop in us a great degree of humility. For if you, the creator and the king of the universe, could be so humble as to enter town on a donkey, what do we have to be arrogant about? So, Lord, make us a humble people who are submitted to your kingship and committed to your glory and on mission with you, Lord. So work in us this evening, Lord. I ask that you would help me to communicate these truths in a way that is uh, authentic, faithful to Scripture, and that brings glory to your name and builds up the church. We ask that you do a great work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, what we see going on here is that Jesus at this moment has a radical shift in modus operandi. A radical shift in modus operandi. That is to say, he is deliberately setting the stage here to be presented to Israel. And he's setting the stage to be presented in two ways. As the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and as the King of Israel who will rule over the world. So at the triumphal entry on Palm 
Palm Sunday, he's being presented in those two ways, as the lamb and as the king. And the switch of modus operandi is this. He is deliberately now, again, setting the stage and orchestrating things so that he would be revealed as the Messiah of Israel. And that's a change because if you've ever read the Gospels, you've noticed that Jesus does this peculiar thing. You know, he'll heal someone or he'll do this awesome miracle and then he'll tell them to keep it on the down low. And have you ever wondered why that is? I mean, he like cleanses a leper and he's like, shh, don't tell anybody. And you're like, what? And of course, they're just like you and I. They never obey him. <laughs> Jesus is like, don't tell anybody. And they're like, okay, Lord. Hey, guys, you got to see what the Lord is. I mean, they're just like you and I. They never obey. But the reason that he tells them that is he knew that the people of Israel would have a proclivity to follow him for the wrong reasons. Again, they're like you and I. They would follow him because they would hope that Jesus would meet their physical needs. He would be the one that would feed them, and he did feed them. He would be the one that would heal them, and he did heal them. He would be the one that would cast demons out of their sons, and he did cast demons out of their sons. But they had this proclivity to follow Jesus for what they could get out of it instead of who he really was. And we know that this is the issue because on occasion, someone would go ahead and, and blabbermouth about who Jesus was when he said not to, and the crowds would be unmanageable. The crowds pressing in to get their needs met. At times, Jesus would have to escape across the Sea of Galilee. Other times, the crowds would be so intense that he couldn't really teach to all the people, and people would be ripping the roof off of buildings to get to him to get the needs met. And so Jesus was strategic in this. Over and over again in the Gospels, he says, mine hour has not yet come. Well, this is when the hour comes, the hour for him to be revealed finally to Israel as the Lamb of God and the King of the universe. And he is deliberately setting the stage. It says in verse 1 that he sent two of his disciples, and in verse 2 he told them to go into the village opposite them, and they would find a donkey tied up there in a colt, and they were to untie them and to bring them. Notice that he has prepared the donkey and the colt. How he did it is a matter of speculation. I mean, did he like sneak away earlier and go in the other village and find someone with a donkey and colt and say, okay, listen, later on I'm going to send two guys and they're going to come for this donkey and this colt, okay? So be cool when they come. Did he do it like that or is he just God and he just was like donkey and colt, opposite village, be there. <laughs> I mean, he spoke the world into existence, so I think it's the latter. I think he's just God, and he's like, donkey and colt, be there, and they were there. Either way, and I like the latter way, he's setting the stage deliberately. I love what he told the disciples to do when they went there. He says, if anybody gives you problems, say to them, the Lord has need of it. <laughs> he says, do the old Yahweh Jedi trick on them. The Lord has need of it. Wouldn't that be fun if we could do that? Hey, nice Escalade. The Lord has need of it. I love that they did that. But the point is, he's setting the stage now to fulfill some specific prophecies. Now, this criticism has come against this text. People have said, now look what Jesus is doing. 
He set up the donkeys to be there. He sent the disciples. He knew about Zechariah 9.9, which is a prophecy that he's going to fulfill that's spoken of in verse 5. Also, Isaiah 62 is mentioned there, but primarily Zechariah 9.9. And so this criticism has been leveled against this text and against Jesus. He, he purposely fulfilled the prophecy to fool the people into believing he was the Messiah. Because this is a popular view. This is a very popular view in the world today that Jesus was just some sort of moral teacher. I don't know what kind of moral teacher fools people about being the Messiah or just some kind of great prophet. I don't know what kind of great prophet has got a fiend getting a couple donkeys together. But nevertheless, they would say that he set the stage in order to make people think he was the Messiah. Wait a minute, that's so stupid. If you read the rest of the Bible, you realize that there are hundreds of prophecies concerning the coming of Jesus Christ, and there are ones that he could not contrive, ones that he could not put together, such as the city of his birth, hello, Uh, his resurrection from the dead, hello, how do you fake that? You know what I mean? And so Jesus here is fulfilling another prophecy concerning the first coming. Notice what it says, say to you, the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, gentle, mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Now, Zechariah 9.9 was understood for hundreds of years by the Jews as being a messianic prophecy, the one spoken of here, that when Messiah came, he would come into Jerusalem humbly on a donkey. That's the picture there. If you're riding a donkey, it's a humble thing, right? That's, that's the picture there. Uh, you know, normally a king would come into town on a big horse, right? That's how the celebrated kings would come. In Revelation chapter 19, how does it say Jesus will come? He will not come on burro or burrito, but he will come on caballo blanco, see? He's going to come on the big white horse in Revelation 19 when he comes again to rule and to rain. But here we see that he comes humbly on a donkey donkey as prophesied. And yet there are these Old Testament prophecies that he would come in the clouds with glory. Daniel chapter 7. And rabbis were kind of um, conflicted about this because they saw saw the, the the dichotomy here, the, the Old Testament picture of the Messiah is coming, coming excuse me, humbly as a suffering servant on a donkey to suffer for Israel, Isaiah 53. And yet in the other hand, they saw according to Daniel 7 and other places that he would come in glory to receive a kingdom, to rule and to reign as a conquering king. And so they tried to resolve this Bible difficulty in their minds. And there are a couple ways that the Jews approached it. One of the ways was to think that there must be two messiahs. And this was a prevalent Jewish view throughout history. There there must be two messiahs. One that will come as a suffering servant and one that will come as a conquering king. And each will play a role for Israel. And so that was one of the views. Another way that they viewed it is interesting. And the teachers of the law started saying this a few hundred years before Jesus ever came. It was codified or written down a couple hundred years after Jesus in the Jewish commentary on the Old Testament called the Talmud. In a section called Sanhedrin 98 Part A. It said this. This is what the Jews had said for hundreds of years. When Messiah comes, if Israel is ready for her, spiritually in the right place, He will come in the clouds with glory like Daniel spoke of. But if Israel is not ready, not spiritually in the right place to receive the Messiah, then he will come on a donkey 
into Jerusalem. Interesting, isn't it? That Jesus comes on a donkey, fulfilling that prophecy. And what we know is that much of Israel missed his first coming. Not all of them missed it, mind you. I mean, the early church was 100% Jewish. Don't know if you ever recognize that. In the book of Acts, the early church was 100% Jewish. Not all of Israel missed it. But much of Israel missed the coming of Jesus Christ. Now, why is that? Well, they had some false expectations. They had some wrong ideas about what the Messiah would do or wouldn't do for them. It's hard to nail down exactly what the Jews thought the Messiah would be like in first century Judaism. First century Judaism was a lot like 21st century Christianity in, in this sense. They didn't agree upon everything. Isn't that just like you and I? We don't agree upon everything about Christianity, but there's some stuff that we agree upon. Well, not everybody within Judaism in the first century agreed on all the aspects uh, of the coming of the Messiah. But one of the things that seems pretty common is that they were pretty sure that when Messiah came, he would deal with the physical oppressors that were over Israel. That when he came, he would free them from whoever was oppressing them. Now, Israel is a people that knew oppression. They knew oppression and slavery when they were under Egypt. They knew oppression when they were in Babylon. They knew oppression under the Assyrians. They knew oppression throughout history. Now, in the first century, in the time of Jesus, they are oppressed, they are dominated by, they are under the political control of Rome. And it seems that a pretty common expectation is that when Jesus comes, he'll deal with our physical, political situation. And Jesus didn't do that. He didn't come to conquer Rome. He came to conquer sin. He didn't come to deal with politics. He came to deal with the devil. That's a big difference. But they had some false expectations, evidenced by the fact that they would follow him for food and for miracles, for healings, and they wanted him to deal with the political oppressors. And quite frankly, they had some unmet expectations. And unmet expectations always yield disappointment. Why are you and I ever disappointed about anything? Because our expectations weren't met. We thought that a certain thing would pan out a certain way and it didn't. And so we are disappointed. Well, they were disappointed. So much so that by the end of this very week, by the end of the Passion Week, much of the same crowd would be yelling out, crucify him, crucify him. Let his blood be upon us and our children. Crucify him. They were a fickle bunch. And there would come a radical change in their opinion. They went from throwing down their garments and lifting up the palm fronds and hailing him as king to shouting crucify him because of unmet expectations. Now I want to speak to that for a moment because I think many of us have a similar problem. I think many of us in our lives have expected God to do certain things that, quite frankly, he just hasn't done. You know what I mean? There's a young guy that was an acquaintance of mine who's a young surfer and had a, a promising surf career and was walking with the Lord, so on and so forth. And his little sister came down with a, a terminal illness. I mean, she's like nine years old, and, you know, she gets this radical cancer thing and has been suffering for years and, 
And uh, the kid is really, 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 really mad at God. He's not walking with Jesus anymore. And he basically said to God, look, I've been this good kid my whole life. The rest of my friends are doing this, that, and the other. And I've been this good Christian kid. And my sister got sick and you're not making her better. He's mad at God. He's bitter. If he doesn't get free from that, it'll wreck his life. A lot of us are dealing with the same thing. Life hasn't panned out, panned out the way that we thought it would. Some of us have gotten terminal illnesses and we expected that God would heal us and God hasn't. Some of our loved ones, we expected God to heal them and they died. Some of us had horrible experiences happen to us as kids and as adults. Some of us haven't had the provision that we've expected and we've lost investments and we've lost houses and all these things and life hasn't turned out exactly how we thought. And it's easy to blame God in those instances. And we see it all the time. And we have a proclivity to do that. And Satan has a proclivity to nurture that in us. Doesn't he? And those unmet expectations can yield real disappointment. We need to understand that God never promised us comfort in this world. He really didn't. He said, in this world, you're going to have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. And when Jesus came into the world, he came humbly. He was born in a manger. There wasn't any room for him in the inn. He grew up working a menial sort of labor. He did a ministry that was difficult and that was often misunderstood. And at the end of it, they beat him, they mocked him, they scourged him, they spit on him, and they nailed him to a cross. Jesus suffered in this world. And what makes us think that we deserve anything different? I mean, where do we get that from? Do we get that from the American dream? Do we get that from the Bible? That we somehow deserve something other than what the Son of God had? Does the Bible promise us always to be healthy, always to be prosperous, always to be cheery, for everything to always be okay? It's not what the Bible says. In fact, the Bible teaches explicitly that the cross always precedes glory. Jesus will come as the king of glory and he will come in glory at the second coming. Amen? But that was preceded by his coming as a suffering servant in humility to be humiliated on our behalf that we might have life. And then he said to those who will follow me, they've got to pick up their cross and deny themselves. And the cross in the Bible always speaks of shame. Someone who was crucified was crucified on a public road in the nude. They are considered a traitor to the nation. They were mocked, they were spit upon, they were jeered at. And the problem with getting mad at God is that it can really wreck your life. Because you're not going to get an apology from him. Because he wasn't wrong. He's never wrong. He's right and he's righteous. 
humanity is wrong and wicked. Don't blame what humanity has done on a holy God. Some of us struggle with this because life hasn't panned out the way that we thought it would. And I want you to notice what Jesus said when he began his ministry. He said, repent, because the kingdom of God is at hand. And that attitude, though it hurts, though it's real, it's wrong. It needs to be repented of. Because the kingdom of God is at hand. And Jesus has come to us. And it says, behold, daughters of Zion, your king comes to you lowly and humble, and he came to them, and he came to them in their spiritual malaise of lukewarmness, and he came to them in their current context of political oppression, and he came to them in their disillusion, and he came to them in their poverty, and he came to them in their rebellion and their waywardness, and the point is, the operative phrase is, he came to them, And when he came, he came as the king, not to solve all their problems, but to vanquish, to conquer sin, death, and the devil, and set us free in our hearts as men and women in such a way that we transcend the problems of the world. You understand there's a big difference there. And again, the operative word is Jesus came. He came to them. He's come to us. And I want you to notice the phraseology. Oh, daughters of Zion, your king comes to you. Daughters of Zion, and God is a God of Zion. These are daughters, people that God considers to be a daughter, and he considers us to be his sons and his daughters, and specifically Israel. Sometimes Israel is called the firstborn son of God, sometimes the daughter of God. And this is rich imagery of the coming of Jesus when when it's summoned with, oh, daughters of Zion. At least it's rich to me. You know why? Because I have a daughter, my little daisy love, my little daisy love, four years old. A little while back, um, She got poison oak really, really bad. I guess she's allergic to it. And she came out one morning and her little face was swelled up like a pumpkin. And she had slept in late and and she came walking out and her eyes were literally swollen shut and there was pus coming from them and her face was just festering and boiling and pus dripping down from it. And she comes out and goes, Daddy, Daddy. It's not funny. Laugh at my daughter like that, I'll kill you. (laughs) I'm just kidding. She comes out, Daddy, Daddy, and she wanted to see herself. She didn't understand what was going on. I lifted her up in the mirror, and she hid her face in shame. And she was so sad, and she didn't look in the mirror for about 10 days. She was infected, and she was oozing and festering with this infection. And man, my father's heart broke for that little girl. I would have done anything for her in that moment. I would have taken that poison oak times a million onto my own body if I could have. She is my daughter. I would have done anything for her in that moment. And don't you understand that God sees us as having been infected 
and as festering and oozing with the reality of of sin. And yet we are his sons and his daughters and he would do anything to free us from that. He would even take that oozing, festering sin into his own body. And so it says in 2 Corinthians, he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And he says, little daughters, daughters of Zion, your king is coming to you. You're infected and you're oozing and you're festering and you're wounded, but your king is coming to you. And what we realize about Jesus is that he's a good king. He's a good king. Exhibited by the fact that even though he's a king of the universe and spoke all things into existence, he humbled himself to be laying in a manger, to enter Jerusalem on a donkey, to be arrested by men and mocked and beaten and spit upon and scourged and nailed to the cross. He's a good king. And though he dwells in a high and lofty place, the prophet Isaiah said he's also near to the lowly and to the brokenhearted. He's a good king and he's a merciful king. And we are his kids. And the objective then is for us to submit ourselves to his kingship. The kingdom is not only future. When he comes again at the second coming, he's a conquering lion of the tribe of Judah, a conquering king to rule and reign and to set up his physical manifest kingdom here on earth. The kingdom is not only future, the kingdom is now. When he came, he said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. At another time, he said, it's in your very midst. The kingdom of God is now. What is the kingdom of God? It is the reign of Christ wherever there is submission to him. And the call upon the Christian is to submit to his kingship. And we have a beautiful picture of that in the next couple verses here. Where it says, and they put their garments on the donkeys. And then in verse 8, most of the multitudes spread their garments in the road. Now, this is what Israel always did for kings. We read about this in 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 13, with King Jehu. He was coming in victorious from a battle, and he was going to battle, and they spread their garments to honor the king. And it was a show of deference. It was a show of honor. It was a show of submission. It was a show of adoration toward the king. And so they're doing that thing that they knew, how to honor the king. But there is this picture in it for you and I. Notice that they put down their garments. I wonder if we've ever laid our garments before King Jesus. For him to sit upon, for him to ride upon, for him to trample on. If we've ever laid our garments down before him. For me, that's a picture of The things that reek of us. You know, everyone's clothes have a certain scent after they wear them, for better or for worse. (laughs) But the things that reek of us, the things of our life that need to be submitted to the kingship of Jesus Christ, our attitudes, our self-perception, our reputation, our grudges, our arrogancies, our sick legalism, these things that reek of us, that don't reek of Christ, but they reek of us. If he's really King Jesus, then there needs to be a submission, a laying down of these things before him for him to trample on. 
where we submit the totality of, his, of our lives to his rule and reign. Those things that stink of us, those things of the flesh, those attitudes, those realities, those grudges, that we lay them down, those immoralities. You see, we are very fond of Jesus the Savior. Oh, love Jesus the Savior. Jesus, I sinned again. It was horrible. It was dirty, rotten. It was awful. Will you forgive me according to the cross? Yes. Oh, thank you. And that's the way it works. He really does forgive us. And we love that fire insurance that keeps us from hell. We love Jesus the Savior. But I don't know that we love Jesus the King. Oh, we want him to be king of everybody else. And we want him to deal with our oppressors. And we want him to be the king who feeds us and who heals us. But I don't know if we love him as a king who demands allegiance and submission. Because we so rarely submit to him. In the minutia of life. In our relationships. In our decisions about who we yoke ourselves together with. Who we enter into deep relationship with. And our decisions about our finances, how we use credit cards. I mean, do we really let him be king in these things? With our emotions. You know, you know what I'm really good at? I'm so good at this. And my wife will tell you this. She'll testify. I'm so good at this. I'm really good at holding a grudge. I hate that about myself. I don't know why that is. It's like when I was a kid, I went to a weekend boot camp with Satan on how to hold a grudge or something like that. <laughs> I, I, I don't know what this is, but I'm so good at it and I'm so good at making someone feel bad when they've wronged me and holding it over their head for so long and keeping that attitude of rejection and disgust and hurt. And, uh, I'm so good at that. It's a gift. I hate that about myself. But that's something that needs to be submitted to the kingship of Jesus Christ. It's emotion, an emotional issue and a spiritual issue. And I need to come under his authority with it. And you know what his authority says? His authority says, Britain, the same way that you've been forgiven, forgive others. In the same way, and how have I been forgiven? I have sinned against God infinitely worse than anybody has ever sinned against me. And he says, in the same way you have been forgiven, forgive others. How did he teach us to pray? Lord, forgive us this day our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And where we often fail as Christians is to bring that emotional reality under the kingship of Jesus Christ to surrender those grudges, to surrender those, that malice, that anger, that bitterness. And you know what the New Testament says about bitterness? It says that it, it's a root that defiles many. Don't let it spring up because many in the body of Christ will be defiled by that bitterness. And it says in Ephesians 4 that when we, when we, when we see in our anger, it's an open door for Satan into our lives. And we need to learn to bring our emotions under the kingship of Jesus Christ, under his authority, under his rule, under his reign. We need to do that with our relationships, with our attitudes, with our grudges, with our finances, and with our identity. 
I was talking with a brother the other day, and we were just sitting down talking about life and ministry and marriage and kids and community and stuff. And he said, you know, here's what's been going on in my life. I've been tripping out on this verse in Philippians where Paul talks about being found in Christ. And he says, that is the goal of my life right now, to just be found in Christ. That his identity would be fully in the person of Jesus. That's what it means to live in the kingdom, to live under his kingship, to lay down our garments, that our identity, our self-identity, our public persona, our reputation, our emotions, our relations, our finances are submitted to him and were found in him, in his righteousness, manifesting the kingdom. Laying down the garments of things that stink of us. Maybe some of us need to do that tonight. I mean, we've never really submitted to his kingship in certain areas. There's a secondary picture that has to do with his kingship that emerges from the same verse. It says not only were they laying down his garments for him to trample on, but they were pulling down branches. And John chapter 12, verse 13 tells us that these were palm branches. And the other... Um, Gospels tell us they weren't only laying them down, but they were waving them. Now, in Israel for hundreds of years, the palm branch had been a symbol of freedom. 200 years before Christ during the Maccabean revolt, it was a symbol of freedom when Jewish Maccabees led a revolt against the oppressors at that time. And there was even a, a temple coin that was minted that had a palm frond on one side. And so in this day when the Jews saw the palm frond, it was the equivalent of you and I seeing the American flag, the stars and the stripes with like fireworks behind it. You know what I mean? It was like independence, freedom, we're free, or at least we want to be. That's what the palm frond signified. And so they're laying down the garments, submitting to the king, and they're pulling down the palm fronds and waving them, which is a picture of celebrating the king. Submitting to the king and celebrating the king. Submission and celebration. This is kingdom life. Jesus is worthy to be celebrated. And he's not just worthy to be celebrated on Sunday when we come in together, but he's worthy to be celebrated in all that we do in life. Life should be a celebration of the person of Jesus Christ. And just as we submit to him in the various areas of minutia of our lives, we should celebrate him in the various areas of our lives. And we should celebrate him publicly and openly. And the third thing that they were doing was they were proclaiming him. It says in verse 9 that they were crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna is a transliteration of a Hebrew phrase that meant save now or please save or save. But by the first century, the Jews were using it as a simple declaration of praise. The same way we use it. We sang it earlier, we'll sing it again. Hosanna. It's just a declaration of praise. Very similar to how we use hallelujah. It's a declaration of praise. It's part of our grammar and vernacular as Christians. And so it was for them. And it really had a dual meaning. Save us from all these things that are coming against us. But notice what they were doing. They were proclaiming him openly. Submission, celebration, proclamation. This is what it means to live in the kingdom. We are subjects of the king. We've been delivered from the domain of darkness, transferred to the kingdom of the beloved son. And so we are to submit to him. We've been bought with a price. Our lives is no, are no longer our own. And he is a good king who knows right. 
We got to celebrate him. He's worthy of our celebration. He is the beautiful Lord of glory in all the universe. Do you know that in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, we have a fulfillment of the mission of God when it says around the throne was every tongue, every tribe, and every nation, and they were gathered around the Lamb, and they had palm fronds in their hand, and they sang to the Lord. And so we see that imagery again of celebrating. And in the life to come, we will celebrate. And in this life, we need to celebrate and worship Jesus Christ and proclaim. Now, if we lived out this kingdom reality, if we really became a people who submitted to his kingship, celebrated his kingship and proclaimed his kingship, I want to suggest to you that we'd have a different city before us that it'd be a lot like it says in verse 10. And when Jesus came, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? I think there'd be a lot more people asking about Jesus. We never have to hear that phrase again. You're shoving Christianity down my throat. We never hear it again because they would have open mouths saying, tell me about Jesus. We want to see Jesus. If they saw some submission, some celebration and heard some proclamation, a couple days after, um, well, let me preface that by saying this. These last elections amazed me for a lot of reasons. One being, I in my lifetime have never seen such a collective expression of hope as we saw in the person directed to the person of Barack Obama. I've never seen such a collective expression of hope in this nation and in the world. I mean, I can remember the day that he was elected and in non-English speaking far away countries, people were saying, he's not just the American president, he's my president. And I now have hope. And in America, it was prevalent. We all saw the stickers, hope and change and newness and, and, and there was this thing in America, this expression of hope. Never seen anything like that. Now, the week after he was elected, a poll came out on foxnews.com, the Harris Interactive Poll. And the poll asked several thousand Americans, who are the biggest heroes in our society? The biggest heroes. The number one in the poll, Barack Obama. That's fine. You know what? I got nothing against Barack Obama. God bless him. God bless his family. God bless his administration. May God use him. Here's what I do have a problem with. You know who was number two? Jesus. Barack Obama, greatest hero in society. Number two, Jesus. Now, I have a problem with that. And again, the, the problem is, my problem is not with Barack Obama. And whose fault is it? It's not Obama's fault. He did a good job at what he was doing. It's not at all his fault. Don't blame him that he's seen as a hero. That's not a problem. Is it Jesus's fault? Jesus, you're slipping in the polls, dude. You got to get your gig together. 
I mean, you got to get a marketing team together. You got to get on YouTube. You got to get on Twitter. You got to get on Facebook. You know, you got to get some stuff going on here. I mean, <laughs> is it Jesus' fault? Because he did slip in the polls a year before he was number one. It's not Jesus' fault. Is it secular society's fault? No. I, I don't expect secular society to think that Jesus is the greatest hero. If they did, I would expect them to submit to him. It's my fault. It's your fault. <laughs> it's our fault. I mean, if we lived like Jesus was really the king, if we really submitted before him, areas of our lives and, and lived under his kingship, if we really celebrated him like Barack Obama was celebrated, if we celebrated him in that way, and if we proclaimed him as he was proclaimed this day in Jerusalem, if we shouted from the rooftops, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. If we proclaimed him, if we begin to capitalize upon the media of the day and the opportunities of the day to faithfully and humbly communicate to a very hungry society who Jesus is, he wouldn't be second in the poll. It's my fault and it's your fault for failing to live like he really is the king because the world hasn't seen submission. Um, the fastest growing religion in the world is evangelical Christianity. Thank you, God. That's good news. But that is in places other than America and Europe and Australia that is in Africa, and that's in the global south, and that's in Asia. But that's where the most of the world's population is. So Christianity is the fastest growing religion in the world, evangelical Christianity. Fastest growing religion in America is Islam. What does Islam mean? Submission. The fastest growing segment of the population converting to Islam? Teenagers. Why is that? I, I don't know for sure, but I have a theory. My theory is this. That they look at Islam and they see some people who are really committed to absolutes. And they look at Christianity, the religion of their fathers. And they've very seldom seen anyone display him as absolute king. It's been a lack of faithful proclamation, a lack of public celebration, and a lack of careful submission. And they look at the religion of their fathers, evangelical Christianity, and they don't see Jesus as king in the way that we live. And they look at Islam and they see some real commitment to belief. And I think we have a generation in America right now that is hungry for absolutes. Because my parents' generation, quite frankly, and I hope I don't offend anybody because I dearly love every one of you, but that generation failed in many ways. 
The social experiment of the late 60s was a monumental failure, which yielded relativism in culture and in society, which has left the youth altogether hungry for some absolutes. Jesus is king. Allah is not. Jesus is the ruling, reigning king of the universe. But the subjects of the kingdom have been commissioned and called and beckoned to live that way to live in submission, to live in celebration, to live in an attitude of proclamation because we have a nation who is hungering and thirsting for hope and for change and it is only found in the person of Jesus Christ. And if we would just give them something to look at, I think we'd have different communities. I think we'd see some transformation and a triumphal entry of King Jesus into our coastland. Amen? Amen. Amen. Lord, thank you for these truths. Lord, help us with these things. Help us to live lives that are consistent with your kingship. Lord, we give you permission now to come by your Holy Spirit and to mess with us. We ask that you make a triumphal entry all brand new into our lives tonight. And come and walk on the things that reek of us and teach us to celebrate you and to proclaim you. Lord, come and rule and reign in us. Deal with the issues of our life, Lord. You know where we're in rebellion. You know where we're playing games. You know all that stuff. And so Holy Spirit, come and deal with us. Thank you that you're a good king. Thank you that you're gentle, that you're kind, that you're so nice. Thank you that you're so much nicer than me or anybody else. Thank you that you're merciful and you're patient and you're loving and you're a father and you have compassion on your children because you know we are just dust. But come, Holy Spirit, and mess with this dirt. Stir up the soil of our hearts and cause us to yield forth fruit that glorifies your name. Prayer team is up here tonight. Somewhere. They want to pray for you. They're anointed in prayer and they have a heart for you. Pray for one another. James says that we should confess our sins to one another and pray for one another we might be healed. Gee whiz, if, if there's anywhere we can pray openly for each other, it's church grab each other and pray over each other and confess to each other. And let's submit together to King Jesus and really press into him now.